Think about what, what cyber actors are able to do, where I don't have to go into a bank. I don't have to worry about being you know, shot or wounded, right? I can do this from a continent away just by getting access into your network. And like I can sit there for months at a time to do reconnaissance uh, on your network, see how things are configured, see how I can move laterally throughout your network, identify accounts that I want to gain access to. And then when, I, when I'm stealing money, I'm not just you know getting $2,500. You know, I'm stealing potentially you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at a time. Welcome to this week's episode of Cloud Talk. Now, the voice you just heard was that of Matt Dunn, who is the Associate Managing Director at Kroll Cyber Risk and a retired supervisory special agent with the FBI. Now, as I thought about what to publish the week of Halloween, it seemed appropriate to share about the scary side of tech. And what's more scary than issues around cybersecurity? We had an amazing conversation. Now, make sure you stick around through the entire interview. Matt is going to share some tips on how to best protect yourself and your organization from these criminals. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking a sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Diverter. 2020 has seen an unprecedented amount of digital transformation occurring, in large part because of COVID, but also built on the back of the momentum that's been building over the past several years. Now, the net of all of this is that more organizations have more and more of their corporate data stored in the cloud and available uh, where the bad guys can unfortunately have a little more access to them. And that creates an amazing attack surface um, for these for these cyber criminals. So joining me today is Mr. Matt Dunn, who uh, is going to tell us all about his background. But let's just say he has a quite distinguished career in chasing the bad guys down, especially in the cyberspace. Matt, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, happy to be here with you today. Uh, glad to have you. So uh, you and I had a little chat before, and um, you know, you were telling me about a little story about some money gone missing from a 401k. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, it was an un unfortunate situation. Uh, it was a case that we wound up working where the uh, the cyber threat actors were were targeting executives and uh, specifically looking to try to get access to their 401k funds. And so in this one particular uh, investigation, they were able to target one, one company and they went after the executives, figuring that they would have more money available in their 401ks. And the way they gained access to it was, was fairly simple. They conducted a, a series of phishing emails and followed up by some good social engineering. And they were able to compromise several of the executives' uh, email accounts through their Office 365 accounts. And once they were able to gain access to their credentials, they logged into their email 
and they just went into the search window and just typed in 401k and they immediately got a list of all of the emails that had 401k in the subject line and they were able to quickly identify which financial investment firm was managing the you know the corporation's 401k funds and the next thing that they did is they went into the email rules and they put an auto forwarding rule on the incoming emails so that any emails that were coming in with that subject line, the 401k, would automatically get forwarded over to an email address that was being monitored by the bad guys. So what they did right after that is they knew the name of the financial investment firm managing the 401k fund, so they just went into the uh, that company's website. And as soon as they pulled up the website in the upper right-hand corner of the website, there's a link there that says log in. So, so helpful. Put- Yes, absolutely. And they uh, they asked for two things like all the logins do. They asked for a username and password. So the username was just a corporate email address. And uh, for one of the uh, executives, um, unfortunately, he was using the same exact password for his email account as he was using for his 401k account. Just made it too easy. But um, on one of the others, he was a little bit more sophisticated and he had a different password. So when the uh, the bad guys initially tried the email password and they got an error message, what do they do? Well, we all know right under the uh, little window where you need to type in your password, there's a little link there that says forgot password. So the bad guys clicked forgot password and they immediately got a splash screen that came up and said, it appears that you have forgotten your password. Would you like us to send a temporary password to the email address that you use to set up this account? And the bad guy said, absolutely, and clicked yes. And the next thing you know, the the financial investment firm sent an email with a temporary password to the corporate executive's email account. But because of that auto forwarding rule that they had put in place, the executive never saw that email. It got bounced right away to the email address being monitored by by the criminals. And now they had the username and a password. They logged right back into the 401k account. And within a period of about 15 hours, they were able to do some interfund transfers and withdraw money and they stole over a million dollars. And was it this a sophisticated attack? No. But was it successful? Absolutely. That is incredible. You know, you always, you you watch the TV shows, you watch the crime movies and you see all of the clandestine, everything that happens when, when going after millions of dollars. And at the end of the day, it was a little social engineering and a little clever poking around to get a, get a username and password, get an email address and a password. Yeah, that's all it took, you know. And unfortunately, Jeff, I mean, this is this is what we see. These are the things I used to see when I was working in the FBI, and it's, I'm seeing them even more now that I'm working in the private sector for Kroll. It's still account compromises, you know, to gain access to emails and other accounts. It's still the number one way that bad guys get access into our accounts. That then leads them into access to our networks. It that just it just dumbfounds me. You always think it's going to be something larger and something much more sophisticated, but um, but but finding and fighting the bad guys wasn't necessarily how you started your career. Let's rewind a little and and give some context to how you ended up here. Sure. Uh, it, what you weren't necessarily enforcing the law, but maybe interpreting it or helping people with it. Tell us about that a little. Yeah, I, this is going back um, several decades uh, now, but uh, I actually went to law school, uh, graduated law school and uh, and became a lawyer. Uh, I was working uh, for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. This is back in the early 90s when there were a lot of banks failing and I was on teams that would 
Uh, unfortunately, I have to go in and close up banks. So we were doing a lot of mortgage fraud and different types of bank fraud, defensive tax takings, things like that. Um, I also opened up my own private law practice where uh, I pretty much did anything that came in the door to pay the bills. So there was a lot of different um, civil litigation matters with real in real estate transactions, divorce cases, custody agreements, and uh, landlord tenant disputes, anything that all, came in. <laughs> all the fun stuff, all the happy moments in life. Yes, unfortunately. Yes. So, so, so at what point do you start to think, you know what, FBI, that sounds like a great place to go from, from divorce proceedings to FBI. Yeah. Where did that fit into the picture? So when I was in law school, the um, the FBI uh, came onto campus uh, during recruitment, and um, I met with uh, one of the recruiters, and uh, they were talking about how we could utilize our our, our law degrees and our, our you know uh, law school educations to um, it would be very applicable for a special agent position in the FBI, mm-hmm. and it was something that uh, intrigued me. I really thought that this would be a great career, but unfortunately, back at the time in the early nineties the FBI had a hiring freeze on. So I decided at that point, well, I'll go practice law. And then um, all of a sudden the FBI began hiring again. And uh, I had happened to have a chance to, to meet up with one of the recruiters and um, and started the process again. And, and, yeah, and the next thing I know, it was, well, it took about a year and a half, but <laughs> I wound up finding myself in a Quantico, Virginia at the FBI's academy. Incredible. Uh, so, so what did the first few years look like inside of the FBI? How were you? How were you know? How was it being a special agent uh, using your law degree? What were the types of cases? What kind of work were you doing? Yeah, I was, you know, the FBI was much different back then. You know, I started with the FBI in 1997, and um, you know, the, the criminal investigations were still, you know, the big hot topic. Uh, I, I was my first office I was assigned to was uh, was in Philadelphia, and I was on a drug trafficking and gang squad, and that, that was really the, you know, the lot of the work. It was one of the priorities for the FBI back then, uh, and so it was it was a lot of fun. Got a chance to work uh, with a lot of great, uh, you know, investigators, and we were going after these, you know, these large enterprises that were, you know, were bringing drugs in from out of the country, and and you know. And to the, to the United States and um, worked a lot of good enterprise type of investigations. Uh, it, it was it was a great learning experience. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, 9-11 happened and it kind of changed uh, a, a lot of ways that the FBI approached investigations and not only for the Bureau overall, as we really started getting, a, you know, a, a focus on counterterrorism and intelligence, but even for me personally, um, I, you know, I volunteered and went up to uh, to Ground Zero. So I was there the next day uh, on September 12th of 2001. And so I spent, um, you know, three weeks up there right after the attacks. And uh, when I got back to Philadelphia, you know, it really, for me, it was, it was a pretty good impact, you know, just on me personally seeing what had happened. And I wanted to get into the fight with counterterrorism. And so I wound up looking for opportunities and, and wound up making the move. And so I, I transferred off of the drug trafficking, you know, squad and got an opportunity to start working counterterrorism. In fact, I wound up uh, transferring down to Washington, D.C., uh, worked at our headquarters in our counterterrorism division, uh, doing a lot of terrorist financing uh, investigations. Spent um, a fair amount of my time actually over in the Middle East, uh, in, in Iraq and in Israel and Jordan and uh, the uh, United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia doing uh, counterterrorism investigations. And so um, 
it was uh, it was um, it was good. It was rewarding. I think that we, we did a lot of good back then. It was uh, it was a different time for the FBI for sure. Um, and, and from there, because I had done so many types of international investigations, um, I was selected to to go up to Toronto, Canada, and open up an office for the FBI up there. And I spent the next five years uh, in Toronto, basically coordinating all FBI investigations that had a nexus to the Greater Toronto area. Uh, and that was, oh, that was a lot of fun. Work, a lot of good cases up there. And uh, from there, I wound up getting selected to come to Nashville, Tennessee, where I was supervising a, a violent crime gang squad. Um, and uh, we did you know, your typical type of FBI investigations, whether it was bank robberies and kidnappings and, and went back to you know, gang and drug cases, organized crime. Uh, I also supervised uh, an FBI SWAT team. I did that for seven years. But um, I wound up finishing my career, spent the last three and a half years supervising, you know, a cyber and counterintelligence squad in Nashville. Okay. And we uh, we handled all you know cyber investigations that happened in the middle district of Tennessee for both criminal and national security related matters. And so we, we got a, you know, a, a chance to work um, you know, with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, with a lot of corporate victims, individual victims that were was in, our, in our area of responsibility. Um, you know, and, and this was you know, starting in 2014, where we really started seeing, you know, the significant data breaches with whether it was Target or Home Depot. And then, you know, we saw things like, uh, you know, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. And, and you know, when all of a sudden you had these major data breaches, we had hundreds of millions of, of individuals, you know, personal identifiable information stolen or, or credit card information stolen that really started, you know, mushrooming, uh, you know, with the types of cases that we started to see. And it's one of the things that, that you know, in, in other conversations that we've had that I always find interesting, like when the breach happens, you know, it's not like the guys, like like if there's a physical breach and they're going to break into the bank to get the money, you're in, you're out and you try to get away and, and then launder that money, as opposed to a data breach where once you've broken through, there's a lot of sitting and waiting and just watching, even up to a year or more, just to really understand the behavior before you know you spring the trap. Um, that's a huge difference between the space of cyber as opposed to the physical world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you think about, you know, like, like you mentioned, just with bank robbery, right? You know, in your typical bank robbery case, you know, like you said, you know, it, you know, in a minute and a half, you know, the robber is in and out of the bank, and the average bank robber winds up getting about twenty five hundred dollars, and you know, and the average you know, jail all? sentence is about in seven years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 not the best crime to commit because you're looking at federal time. You know, your average sentence is about seven years and the vast majority of bank robbers get caught. You know, just think about it. There's they, they, there's high definition security cameras all throughout the bank. You're leaving, you know, forensic evidence behind, whether it's fingerprints or, you know, hair follicles, whatever it may be. And so it's right. um, it's not the smartest crime. But think about what what cyber actors are able to do where. I don't have to go into a bank. I don't have to worry about being, you know, shot or wounded, right? I can do this from a continent away just by getting access into your network. And like you said, I can sit there for months at a time to do reconnaissance uh, on your network, see how things are configured, see how I can move laterally throughout your network, identify accounts that I want to gain access to. And then when, I, when I'm stealing money, I'm not just, you know, getting $2,500, you know, I'm stealing potentially, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars at a time. 
Well, and the potential to even be have it be larger than that, like you mentioned, when you talk about a breach at a at a at a target, for let's say, where you're getting you know thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of of, of personal information of individuals, now you have a million different targets or ways to exploit that data. And again, what I found personally, uh, victim of it, is when that stuff gets gets um, compromised. You know, they're not out swiping the credit card at a at a gas station the next day. I mean, it could be six months until that stuff starts to actually get used or get moved around and then used. Yeah, and I think especially with you know with credit cards, it's a little different now. I mean, I think that you'll find that most banks have pretty good uh, fraud detection units, and they're going to pick up on things right away if if it, things are outside of your usual spending habits. You know, they have that type of artificial intelligence that's sort of built into their programming. So, um, so I think you're right that a lot of times they're going to kind of these individuals that grab a hold of that type of sensitive data are going to sit back and wait until the right opportunity to go ahead and use it to conduct. Other criminal activities. Yeah, um, and it's interesting too when you think about you know I mentioned it earlier in the in the beginning about the amount of data that's now in the cloud, and so even just breaching you know you, to, even back to your example in the beginning that the, those bad guys did not go breach the financial in, financial institution they got a they got an email username and password that was it and it equaled a million dollars. Well, I mean, if think about how things have progressed with cybercrime, you know, over the past decade, you know, they, the bad guys used to do what you were just alluding to. They would try to get inside the network because once they were in, they could go ahead and, and, and you know, and find the sensitive data that they wanted. You know, but over the years, uh, we, we've gotten much better at protecting the perimeter, right? Mm. Through whether it's you know uh, improved firewalls, whether it's through antivirus software, whether it's through intrusion detection systems, intrusion prevention systems, where you know the, the perimeter to get access into that network from an outside source is, is fairly difficult now because there's a lot of good tools that are set up from there. And so, what have the bad guys done? Well, they target you know the the weakest link in the cyber security chain, which is the human element. You and I. Right. You and I. Yeah. Because I don't need to go ahead and do some type of sophisticated attack to find, you know, misconfigurations in your firewall. All I need to do is see if you're using the same weak password that's going to get me into your network or it's a password that you use for all of your accounts and it's been compromised a hundred times and available on dark web forums. I just go ahead and log in as you and now I've got full access. And, you've got, you know, especially today where there's not a lot of um, like least privilege type of uh, policies that are set in place. And once I get into a network, I can move far laterally as I need to. That's when the bad guys, you know, are able to really reap the benefits. And that's when they really get access to the sensitive data that can, can hurt a business or expose a lot of their client, customer or employee information. Before we continue, here's some information on some upcoming events. Rackspace Technology remains committed to using our position as the global leader in multi-cloud to empower you through technology to deliver the future. One way we do this is through the Solve Strategy Series. The Solve Strategy Series is a monthly collection of global roundtable events happening throughout the second half of 2020. These events feature industry influencers, experts, technologists, and leaders covering a variety of topics, including cloud security, 
AI and ML, multi-cloud strategy, and cloud-native enablement. These roundtables always have an industry expert as the moderator, like Cheryl Hung, the VP of Ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, or Jack Aldrich, author and global futurist, to name a few. And they are joined by a panel of experts in their fields to engage in thought-provoking and timely conversations. These events are free, but you do have to register. And if you miss one, they're available on demand. Just head over to solve.rackspace.com and click the link for Solve Strategy Series. And now, back to the conversation. All right, so it's the time of year that things get a little spooky. And the things that you know keep me up at night a little bit are have to do with in the space of cybersecurity. What keeps you up at night? What are the things that you see that are new or you know, we've already talked about the, the weakest link, you and I, um, but, but what's keeping you up at night from a cybersecurity perspective? Well, I, I think that especially this year, uh, as we're dealing with you know, the COVID-19 pandemic and what it's forced a, a lot of companies to do is, is push all their employees uh, to work from home. You know, so we have all of these remote working from home employees. And uh, unfortunately, when, when things happen with COVID so quickly, a lot of companies just weren't prepared for it. And they didn't have, you know, um, updated, you know, remote desktop protocols as a way of gaining access to your network. Um, you know, their their VPNs, you know, were unsecure. They hadn't patched, you know, any of the VPNs. And so that led to, to a lot of vulnerabilities. But also you had so many companies that just didn't have enough corporate issued devices to give to their employees. And so people are forced to use their own personal devices. And if they're connecting into the corporate network, from, uh, from the same device that their kids are using to play games on and clicking on every link that they get, you don't know what type of malware is already on that device that you are now introducing to your corporate network. And unfortunately, we've seen cyber threat actors take advantage of this vulnerability and they've been targeting the remote work from home employees. And so many of the cases that we see are either from, again, it's weak passwords that they're using a brute force attack on or just getting through their RDP. Um, and especially for companies that haven't instituted a two-factor or multi-factor authentication as a way of validating who you are before you gained access into the network. And so these are the things that concern me because we're allowing uh, you know, so many gaps in our security strategies that's you know, allowing these criminals to gain access into our network. And right now, you know, we are seeing so many ransomware cases, and that's exactly how it's happening is that, you know, it's either through a phishing email or it's like a brute force attack on RDP where the bad guys are able to get in uh, into our networks and then, you know, go ahead and drop malware like ransomware. And today's ransomware is it's... Um, it's fairly sophisticated. It's very difficult to decrypt unless you have those decryption keys. And so, um, unfortunately, we've seen so many companies that have had to pay out a lot of money to get those decryption keys, or you know, you're shut down for a while while you're trying to restore from backups that hopefully are segmented and validated. Well, and that has its own set of challenges as well. I mean, there I don't think there's been any industry that hasn't been impacted by this, but think about yeah, I've read about the stories of of hospitals that have had had it show up. And now all of a sudden they have no idea who is scheduled for surgery that day. And now they're not doing life needed surgeries. I mean, that's not just, oh, it's inconvenience. I can't, you know, check my email for a few days. It's 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 impacting people's lives. 
Yeah, yeah, you know, I, so I've been talking about ransomware for years, uh, and the the thing that really concerns me is just what you you were discussing, which is uh, you know ransomware attacks in the healthcare industry, and, and you know um, targeting hospitals networks because so much of the the data that is stored now is stored electronically, all of these electronic medical records. And uh, if a hospital's network is impacted and medical practitioners can't access things like blood lab results or x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, don't know about what other medications you're on that may have a negative you know, impact on something they're about to do. But also think about so many of the the, um, the medical devices that are now being connected to the internet and whether it's monitoring devices and things like that for patients. Uh, and, and I've been talking about this for years and saying that, you know, the ransomware attacks in the healthcare industry is really a, could be a life or death situation. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, this came true. There was a, a hospital in Germany that got hit with ransomware and the physicians they were about to do surgery on a patient and because they couldn't access some of the monitoring uh instrumentation that they would need for the surgery they wound up having to relocate this patient to a different hospital that was 20 miles away and unfortunately by the time she arrived there she had passed away so now you're talking about a cyber attack a ransomware attack that's led to someone's death that is incredible. I mean, you always know that the bad guys are just bad guys doing bad things. And you think it's, you know, even, even in the example from the beginning of the show where, where, where somebody lost, you know, where millions of dollars went missing, painful, but not life or death. And now we're talking about cyber actually becoming life or death. And while we're talking about it from an individual's perspective, that, that, that unfortunate woman who had to be moved 20 miles, this was a corporate attack against the corporation that was the hospital. And it's incumbent on, you know, the, 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 the challenges that all corporations face today to have to battle that is, is just massive. Yeah, it's right. It's a difficult situation because the you know the criminals are targeting companies every day, and it's and like and as you had mentioned earlier, it's across all industry verticals. I mean, they really don't care. Uh, you know, I have seen some reporting that some of these threat actor groups, some of these organized crime groups, have said that, that you know during COVID they were not going to target uh, hospitals, but. Not all of them are abiding by those same rules. And unfortunately, we've seen the healthcare industry impacted, you know, numerous times during this pandemic, which is really unfortunate. And uh, but, you know, the bad guys are doing it for a reason. They are financially motivated and they know that if they're able to, you know, to go ahead and put a foothold and malware on your network, that for a situation like a hospital, which is critically dependent on, on being able to access that information, they're more apt to pay the ransom. And they can hit them with a large ransom amount as well. And we've seen ransom amounts, you know, go from the, you know, it used to be several hundred dollars in Bitcoin. And now we're seeing them in, in six and even seven figures to, you know, to get that decryption key. When life or death is on the line, you're not going to back up. You're going to pay it and you're going to just get back to life as quick as possible. Exactly. But here's another scary thing. You mentioned medical devices, but what about all these devices we're bringing into our homes? Yeah. And and even though we say, you know, hey, it's just a camera here, it's just an Alexa device there, a Google Home device there. Um, yeah, and, and what, what, what could they actually do with it? But you know, that's a device that's connected to the network, that's connected to a larger system that has a whole lot of our other information. How, how's, that, how's that striking you these days? 
Yeah, it's it really um, can be frightening when you think about the Internet of Things. Um, and as you mentioned, there's a lot of devices that are out there that are just, you know, great to make our lives more convenient. But the problem is security is not the number one factor that goes into the development process for that. And unfortunately, so many of these devices are just, you know, it's just the default password that's being used that the bad guys can get access to in dark web forms fairly easy. And if you, once you connect to that device, whether it's your your ring doorbell or, you know, your 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 iRobot, whatever it may be that's connected to your Wi-Fi, if you gain access into someone's network and there's no other segmentation, then it gives you free reign. And, and so it's really, it's the... Um, it's the path of least resistance, you know. For that, and if they can, if it's if you're using a default password to get into one of these devices, then that's the easy way to get into the network where they can really find the sensitive data. Now, if if I've got time, I'll tell you one of my favorite uh, IoT stories. So this happened about a year and a half ago, and it involved um, a casino that wound up having its network um, penetrated and the bad guys were able to steal a lot of money. And you would think to yourself, how could they get into a casino's network? Casinos are known for having probably the, you know, yeah. the best security of any industry. They're, they're, they're never shy about spending money for security. So this is what the bad guys were able to do. In this particular casino, in the lobby, there was a huge fish tank. And in the fish tank, there was a thermometer that was connected to the internet. And this made it easy for the individuals that were responsible for the maintenance of the fish tank that they didn't actually have to go there and look at the temperature on there. They could go on their phone or their tablet and pull up it just to see if they needed to make an adjustment. The problem was there was hardly any security at all on this thermometer. Bad guys got into it and the thermometer was connected to the casino's network. Bad guys got in and they were able to move laterally. They found the database of the high rollers that the, uh, the casino maintained and they had names, they had DOBs, they had bank account information. They were able to zip that and exfiltrate it right back up through that thermometer. I mean, that's what can happen today with these types of devices. Incredible. Okay. So in the last few minutes that we have, well, what I'm going to ask you now is two pieces of advice. One that you will give to the individuals who are now scared because it's Halloween time and so they're scared. So what is what is the one best thing that they can do as individuals to help protect themselves? And then we're going to ask that question on the flip side, same question, but for a corporation. So for individuals, I would say it is an absolute must to utilize multi-factor authentication whenever it's available for your platforms, but especially for what I would call your critical uh, accounts. That's going to be your email account, your online banking and investment accounts, and your social media. I I'm telling you, Jeff, that if multi-factor authentication was instituted across the board, it would eliminate probably mm -hmm. 60 to 70% of the cases we see, just because it would eliminate the bad guys gaining access to those accounts. So yeah. I mean, for people that are, that are listening, for your home use, absolutely go ahead and, and utilize two-factor authentication, especially for those critical accounts to protect yourself. Yep. Okay, great one. And of course, that's something as simple if, the, if we have some non-security experts on, on here, as simple as you're going to log into your bank account, you give it a username and password, and you've configured it so that it will text your phone the number that you've chosen, a code, a one-time use code that's only good for five minutes that you could then type into the browser or your app 
and then you're on your way. Exactly. Yeah. Something that simple. Okay. Corporations, right. how do, how, so, what, what's some advice for them? Yeah. For corporations, uh, I would, I would think there's a couple of things. One, uh, something I mentioned earlier, instituting a policy of least privilege. And this would really eliminate the ability of the threat actors to move laterally throughout the network. So if you limit uh, employees' uh, accesses to databases within the network just to what they need to do their job, then it may you know, eliminate some of the exposures that you would have if their account does get compromised because the bad guy will be limited because he's going in under your credentials. And if you only have limited access, then that individual is going to have limited access as well. So I would say, you know, least privileged policies first. The other thing I would mention um, is make sure that you have some type of patch management system uh, installed. Security patches um, would also eliminate a lot of the types of cases we see. You know, bad guys are usually the first ones to um, to identify vulnerabilities, whether it's in an operating system or software applications, uh, and they take advantage of that. So when you're getting these notifications that there's a security patch that's been pushed out, make sure that you go ahead and update those applications to eliminate that. And, and the other thing I would say is um, for companies is to make sure that they um, – really reduce the number of people that have um, administrative rights and even local administrative rights. Because if a bad guy is able to go ahead and compromise someone's account that has uh, admin rights, it really gives them uh, the ability to move freely throughout the network where they can go through, conduct reconnaissance, identify the sensitive databases, and then be able either to encrypt it or to exfiltrate it, where they're then going to either sell it, uh, you know, on dark web forums or try to extort money from you. They're saying that they're going to release that information on a public facing website. Got it. All right. So I said those were the last questions, but I have one more. And that is, you know, in, in previous years and the farther you go back, you find this to be more true. And that is that companies, of course, are, are less willing to pay for the consulting and the work on the front end to ensure that the right policies and procedures are in place, that all of these occur. Now, they're more than willing to pay huge bills for people to come in and run the, and not only say run a fire drill to actually, you know, do the remediation, do the forensics, do the discovery and all that work. Are you starting to see that change, especially in your, your role inside of Kroll? inside of the industry where people are being more proactive? We are. Uh, and I think that uh, unfortunately for a lot of companies, you know, they, they had to learn the hard lesson first because they had to suffer some type of incident uh, where, you know, a firm like Kroll, we were able to come in and help, you know, contain and remediate the situation, but then also identify the vulnerabilities of how they were able to get compromised. So a lot of times we, we get brought in after the fact as well and say, okay, we just, we, we just got over this incident. What can we start to look for? What vulnerabilities do we have that we can start remediating so this doesn't happen again? And I think what we're starting to see is competitors of the unfortunate victim are now contacting us as well and saying, we don't want to have to go through what they just did. What can we do to make sure that we have all of the measures in place to be able to, to detect any type of attack and respond to it so we don't get compromised? Okay. Excellent. Matt, fascinating conversation as always. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Yeah, my pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content 
from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com. It's amazing to think how much trouble we could stay out of if we just pause and think before we click. Now, you heard the information earlier about the Solve Strategy Series that we have going on, but I want to encourage you to check out the articles that we have over on solve.rackspace.com as well. There's a new one posted this week on the debate between AutoML or Data Scientist by Eric Miller. It's a great article by a brilliant technologist. Now, if you've got any questions or comments or even a suggestion for a future episode, just email us here at cloudtalk at rackspace.com. Now, here's what we have in store for you in our next episode of Cloud Talk. Balancing this trade-off of you want to empower citizen developers, and at the same time, you want to make sure that you can still meet your security and compliance requirements. That's, you know, that if you can get that balance right, it's incredibly powerful. But if you get it wrong, it's also incredibly scary. And so that's, you know, that's been our kind of focus with the Power Platform. And that's Scott Guthrie of Microsoft, next time on Cloud Talk.